Awesome. Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we would love to get to know you, help you get plugged in. Like uh, Becky was saying, small groups are one of the best ways to get plugged in. And I guess uh, her and I will just have to agree to disagree on the best group, right? So... Uh, you can make a decision for yourself. Try them both, right? Anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, last week we began a new series uh, this fall, working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, our kind of MO here at River City is we just kind of pick books of the Bible and work our way through because uh, the reality is what I have to say is highly unimportant. And so I uh, would rather spend our time focusing on what God thinks is important and seeing what his word has to say. And so this fall we're working our way through the book of Nehemiah. It is a book that likely, uh, maybe for a lot of you, it's, uh, it's an often overlooked book. And so maybe for some of you, it was the very first time you even heard about the book of Nehemiah last week when we started talking about it. For, for others of you, maybe you've read through it or, or heard a little bit about it, but oftentimes people think that what Nehemiah is really about is about a guy who is a great leader who builds an important wall. And uh, that's actually not what it's about at all, right? Uh, those things are both true. Nehemiah is a great leader, and he does rebuild an important wall, but that is not the point of the story. Instead, like every book in the Bible, the, the point of the story, every book, what it's really about is God. And, and so what we saw last week as we began, specifically that Nehemiah is actually a book about how God is proving that he is a God who keeps his promises, who's faithful to do what he says that he will do. We uh, talked about how one of the most central storylines in all of the Bible is about how God is at work making for himself a people who will live for the praise of his glory, a people who will worship him with their lives. And so we saw how in Leviticus 26 and in Jeremiah 29, what God does is he makes a promise or a covenant with his people. And in the, the covenant that a promise that he makes with them is basically that, that if they would worship and obey him, him, that he would gather them and bless them, that he would cause them to be a people who are gathered for his name and for his glory. And, but if, that, if they chose instead to reject God and disobey him, that instead of blessing them, he would oppose them. Instead of gathering them, he would scatter them throughout the nations. And what you read, sadly, is throughout the Old Testament that God's people, uh, they go with option B. Right? They choose plan B, the one where they reject God and his leadership and his authority. And, and what we see is that God keeps his promise to oppose them and to scatter them. We see in the mid-500s BC that God allows the Babylonian Empire to completely conquer and destroy the city of Jerusalem and scatter God's people all over the Babylonian Empire as exiles. And what we saw last week as well is that, that that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't, nor was it the end of the promises that God made to his people. We saw how at the end of Leviticus 26 and what Jeremiah 29 reiterates is that, is that God's promise that if his people, while they were in exile, if they would turn again in faith and repentance back to him, that he'd remember the first part of his promise to gather them and to bless them and to make them a people who live for the praise of his glory. And and it's at that critical moment in the, in the redemptive story of history that the book of Nehemiah takes place. See, Nehemiah was a Jewish exile living in the Persian Empire. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians, and, and uh, that was the start of that return to Jerusalem that was happening. And, and what we see is that the story opens with, with God putting Nehemiah in this very strategic Place. He is the, the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And what that means is that he's the guy who kind of tastes all the food and wine uh, that comes before the king to make sure that it's not poison and won't kill the king, which sounds like a very stressful job, right? You eat great, 
but you might die, right? It's a mix, right? Mixed bag, right? But what we see is that that, that position was really one of incredible trust and also influence with the, with the Persian kings. And so what you see happening throughout the story is, is that God is using Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of his promises that he's made to his people, to gather them and to bless them and to make them a people who will glorify him and ultimately to be a people through whom he's going to ultimately send the, the Savior who will not just rescue them from captivity in Babylon or Egypt, but who's going to rescue them from the ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death and and so the story of Nehemiah is really not a story about him at all. It's not really a story about a great leader who builds an important wall, but it's really a story about a great God. A great God who is the one and true God of heaven who sovereignly rules and reigns over all people and all times and all places and all events, who's in control and who is faithful to keep his promises. What we see happening throughout the story is what it looks like when God's people, like Nehemiah, well, who are, they choose to respond to who God's proven himself to be with dependence and faith on him. And by committing themselves to being and to building a community who will indeed live for the praise of God's glory. That's at the heart of what the whole book of Nehemiah is about. And so we saw last week in chapter one how all that begins with God giving Nehemiah his heart for his name and his glory in, in the city of Jerusalem and the people that are there. And Nehemiah opens the book, which is basically his kind of journal entries, his memoirs, and he recounts how he received a report from his brother Hananiah about how the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and about how God's people are in great distress stress and disgrace that are there. And, and the response that Nehemiah we see he has is that he, he, just, he is broken. He weeps and mourns and prays and fasts for three or four months. This news about the walls of Jerusalem has shaken him to the core. And what we saw as we studied last week is that that was actually, that, that, sh that would have been pretty surprising because that information, that report that he got about Jerusalem, that wasn't new information. Right? The walls of Jerusalem, they've been broken down and in disrepair for about 140 plus years, right? Not new, right? And also, Nehemiah served the very king who we read about in Ezra chapter 4, specifically halted any rebuilding efforts that were happening in the city of Jerusalem. And so, Nehemiah would absolutely have known about the state of Jerusalem. And so, what we see is that while it's not new information that he gets, what we see is that it hits him in a new way. Because what's going on is that God's causing Nehemiah to see things the way that he sees them and to care about them the way that he cares about them. And you see, the city of Jerusalem was God's city. It was the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell. It was the place where God was supposed to be worshipped and his word was supposed to be revered and people, his people lived together showing the nations what he was like. And so what we see is that the dilapidated ruins of Jerusalem, what they're really doing is, is not just a city that's fallen apart, but it's a city that's tarnishing the name of God that, re that it represents. And it's proclaiming this message about God, a false message that he's really weak and powerless and that worshiping him, there's no advantage, there's nothing to be gained by doing that, and that his promises, they, they don't hold true. What Nehemiah is distraught about is that is that the city is, is proclaiming that message about God. And so the way, the, his, the, the dramatic nature of his response, what it shows us is that he sees that situation with the kind of urgency and reality that God sees it. It's not something he reasoned his way into or figured out on his own. What we saw last week is it was very clearly God giving him his heart, 
helping him, causing him to see things the way that God sees them. He's preparing Nehemiah to be an instrument through which his, he brings about the fulfillment of his promises. But what we're going to see this morning as we dive into chapter 2 is that it's not just Nehemiah's heart that God's been at work preparing. It's also uh, the heart of King Artaxerxes, the Persian king as well. And what I want to show you this morning as we begin chapter 2 is, is that the, the story of Nehemiah is not a story, again, about, uh, it's not a story about brilliant strategy or the importance of planning, that's not the lesson. Instead, what Nehemiah models for us is what it looks like when God's people live with a deep-rooted dependence on God. Out of response to knowing who he is and seeing who he is when God's people live with a deep-rooted dependence on God. Remember, uh, Nehemiah is not the hero of the story. God is. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 2. Jesus, thank you so much for our time together. Thanks for your word. Uh, we're just grateful to get to study it together. And God, we just humbly ask that you would meet us in our study this morning, that you'd be empowering me to teach and to preach, that you'd be enabling all of us to hear and listen and respond. And this is the reality, God, is that like without you doing that, like our time is pointless this morning. We need you to be the one that shapes our hearts and, and reorients our minds. And so we ask Jesus that you would and that you do that for our good, but also ultimately Jesus so that we'd be a people who worship you with our lives and glorify you. And so uh, we need you for every part of that and we look forward to how you'll meet us in your word this morning. And so we pray, amen. All right, well, Nehemiah chapter two this morning. We're gonna start in verse one. Begins this way, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, that's kind of a March-April time period. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, it was uh, last week we started the story as a different month. It's been about four months or so, three or four months have, have passed since Nehemiah heard this report and when he's coming to the king here. And so when he says, when, when, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. For why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servants found favor in his sight, then let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me and so I set a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I also have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sambalot the Hornot and Tobiah the Ammonite were, I'm not going to talk a lot about them this week, but they come back up over and over in the story. We'll get to them. When they, heard of, when they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. 
All right, so if you were with us last week, what you remember is that chapter one ends with Nehemiah praying, and he's asking God to give him favor with the king. And, and what we see in the beginning of chapter two is why he's asking for favor with the king, right? Because what he's about to ask the king to do has about like a million and one ways it can go real bad, and about one that it can go right. And so let me, let me explain what I mean. You see, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king of Persia. He is the most powerful man in the, in the world at this time. And for the last three or four months, ever since he got this report about the walls of Jerusalem, he's been weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. But he's been doing all that on his own time. See, even though he's going through a lot and his heart is breaking, when he's at work, he makes sure that everything appears to kind of be status quo, that things are normal, which is why when the king sees his sadness, he is, he's really surprised. He's like, what, what is going on here, right? You see, while the king may have been surprised, what we see is that Nehemiah is actually very much afraid. And, and that, I think, is for two, I think he has two really good reasons to be afraid. The first is simply this, that, that Persian law required that everyone in the king's courts would appear happy before the king at all times. One commentator put it this way, it says, it was expected that the joy of being in the king's presence would be reflected on everyone's face, right? And, and the reality is, right, like, you should be happy, to be with this great dude. He is the most powerful king in the whole world, and you should be, you are blessed to even be around him, right? And so you should be happy all the time, right? The penalty for violating that law could have been quite severe, right? Even and up into including death. And so Nehemiah is, is really, he's actually afraid for his life. It's a, it's a real possibility. But I think he's also afraid because what he knows is that this sadness, while sadness before the king might cost him his job or maybe even his life, uh, what he's about to ask the king to do has a way higher chance of, getting, of costing him those things. You see, you see, Nehemiah's sadness before the king, it wasn't an accident. It was deliberate. It was intentional, just as intentional as all the past three or four months of faux happiness in front of the king had been, Right? See, because what Nehemiah is doing is he's trying to get the attention of the king because he wants to ask him something. And what Nehemiah is about to ask him could very easily be perceived as disloyalty or, or even treason. And those things would certainly have cost him his life. And so get the king's attention, it did, right? He asked Nehemiah, you're not sick, so why are you sad? The king's like, yo, bro, like, you know how it works, right? Like, you know, the, you, you, like, you've been around a while, right? Like, we don't do the sadness thing in front of me. Like, that's not how we roll, right? You know, like, that, that's not what's going on here, buddy. So, like, what is going on, right? What, what is happening here, right? And Nehemiah can only imagine just, like, holding the bottle of wine, like, doing, like, one of those shaky things, like, trying to pour it. And he's like, oh, geez, here we go, right? And he's just, he's, I'm sure he's just, he's freaking out, thinking to himself, right? He's like, all right, well, no turning back now, right? We did, like, the king knows there's something going on, can't turn back, right? So he was, takes a big gulp, I imagine, answers in verse three. He says, may the king live forever, right? He's like, king, it's not you, it's me, right? Like, I'm on your team, we're cheering for you, right? Like, there's not some weird thing going on here. It's not you, it's me, I promise, right? But he says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, when you look at Nehemiah's reading, it's, it's really interesting. Did you notice how he specifically does not say anything about which city it is that's lying in ruins or about whose city it is that is lying in ruins or about anything about God at all, right? Even though we know clearly that that's his chief concern. And, 
I just want to be clear here. Nehemiah is not trying to be dishonest, right? He's not trying to bait and switch this king. He's that, there's 0% chance that's going to work, right? Um, but what's going on here is that while Nehemiah is not trying to be dishonest, he is being pretty prudent and wise because the reality is, is, that, is that framing his concerns through the lens of Jerusalem, that would almost certainly have been perceived and taken by the king as disloyalty. You see, like I said in, as we opened, right, in Ezra 4, we read that the, the governors of the trans-Euphrates, these people that he's asking later for passage from, they had petitioned the king and specifically kind of convinced him that, that Jerusalem was not a place you wanted to have rebuilt because that's a place where rebellion stemmed from and that's a place where problems come from and you do not want to deal with that. And so King Artaxerxes takes their advice uh, in Ezra chapter 4 and he puts the official kibosh on any and all rebuilding efforts of the city of Jerusalem, right? And so Nehemiah, right, he's, he's not trying to start a rebellion, right? He just wants God's name to be honored. He just wants God to be worshipped as, as he should be. And so instead of framing his concerns in potentially kind of combative political, uh, political terms, he frames them instead in, in personal and familial terms instead. And the idea that someone's ancestors should lie in honorable graves, that would have been an idea that made a whole lot of sense to the Persian kings. Right? That was something that's very deeply ingrained into most uh, Near Eastern cultures. And, and so that would have been something that it's likely the king would have empathized with. And what you see happening is that Esther used a very similar tactic when she approached Xerxes, which is Artaxerxes' father. The story of Esther is just a few decades before the story of Nehemiah here. And you see when she goes to the king, right, she doesn't leave lead with like, oh, I'm concerned about my people. She leads with personal stuff, right? And she's developing a relationship with the king. And she's not trying to be duplicitous, but what she is trying to do is not get killed, right? And that's wise, right? Because getting killed is not helping the plan, right? So Nehemiah here, right? He's, he's at the point of no return. He has kind of knocked on the proverbial door, right? He has rung the proverbial bell. You can't unring it. You can't unknock it. We, we're going down the road, right? And so he is just waiting for the king to respond, and he does, right? And the king responds by, not by ordering Nehemiah's immediate firing or dismissal or death, but with another question. He just says, what do you want, man? Like, what, what's going on? Right? What, what, are you, what are you asking for, Right? And with that response, I think what Nehemiah realizes is that the door that he just knocked on has not been slammed in his face, but that it's, it's wide open. And so before he walks through it, we see that he kind of shoots up what Sinclair Ferguson, a, a pastor, he kind of referred to or coined as an arrow prayer, right? And I think it can be easy to kind of think about that little prayer that we read about in chapter four as just like this little throwaway thing that we kind of move on past. But but I think that just speaks such volumes about Nehemiah's character and about what he really believes and thinks. See, the, the reality is, is that in moments of crisis and stress and, and tension, the, the who you are really deep down, the true you, that's what comes out, right? Because you don't have any energy or attention to give to kind of finessing the version of you that you're presenting. And, and what you see happening here is that the default reaction of Nehemiah, his instinctual response... It's reliance and dependence on God, right? In the middle of everything that's going on, he says, and I prayed to the great God of heaven. You see, he doesn't look over his notes a second time. He doesn't rehearse his lines, the stuff he's been preparing. So what he does is he refocuses his attention on the only one who has any power in this whole situation, and that's God. Nehemiah realizes that he... He does not have any power. He does not have any authority. 
but he does worship the one who does. And so he prays. And then this dude straight up asks for the moon. Like, it is crazy. Like, he just, it is crazy. He asked for everything, right? He, he asked the king to basically let him take a ton of time off of his important job. It's like 900 miles from Susa back to uh, Jerusalem. That's like literally four months just of like donkey travel, right? Like, it's a long time. So you're, he's asking for like at least a year off of work, right? To go back to Judah and to personally rebuild the city of Jerusalem, saying nothing about the fact that this dude is like a glorified sommelier, like not a construction worker. Like, what does he know about rebuilding walls? Like, he tastes wine and food. Like, that's his thing, right? It's not, he's, it's not his lane, as it were, right? But that's not all he asked for, right? He says, verse 7, he asked for letters of safe passage. That's basically asking for the king to endorse his mission and what he's doing. It's telling the regional officials, the same ones who specifically had petitioned this king not to let Jerusalem get rebuilt again, right? It's he's asking for letters so that he can have safe passage through their territories, letting them know that this thing that he's doing is the king's business. It's his priorities and that they should treat him as they would treat the king, kind of an or else kind of situation. And top it all off, he asked verse 80, yes, for the wood from the king's own forest to rebuild the gates and the walls of a foreign city. And it's just easy for us to look past that, but I just, I just need to let that sink in for a minute, like the, the magnitude of what Nehemiah has just asked for, right? He is a foreign servant. No status, no priority, like, he is, he is not someone to be respected. He is not someone to make an ass like this to the king. And he basically asked the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at this time, not only to reverse his own foreign policy decisions, but to personally endorse and fund the very rebuilding of the city that he specifically said he didn't want to ever get rebuilt. And the king says, yes. To everything. His only question is, how long are you going to be gone, right? You're like, that, that's it? This went way, I can only imagine Nehemiah's like, this went way better than I was thinking it would go, right? Like, it's incredible. There, there is only, he, he goes above and beyond. Verse 9, we see he actually gives Nehemiah an entourage, right? He's got an army. He's got officials going with him. Like, he is legit, right? And the reality is that there, there is only one way you can describe the king's response to Nehemiah's request here. There's one way you can describe it, and it's that it is absolutely miraculous. It is absolutely miraculous. And Nehemiah knows that. He gets that, right? Where does Nehemiah place all the credit for the king's seemingly unbelievable response? Verse 8, right? He says, because... The gracious hand of my God was on me. The king granted my request. Nehemiah has clearly spent a lot of time strategizing about how he's going to make this ask, right? And it can be argued his strategy was good, right? Like he picked the right time. The queen is with the king, right? That always puts the king in a good mood, right? When the queen's around, like a little more able to respond to stuff, right? Like he, he doesn't approach it in political terms. He approaches it very intentionally in familial and personal kinds of terms. He's, he's like very deliberate about the way that he goes about doing it, right? It can be argued his strategy is great and he executes it well, right? 
And it is very clear that he has spent a lot of time planning. When the king says, what do you want? He's not like, oh, well, that's a surprise. I didn't think you were going to say that. No, like he has a very detailed response, right? He has a very detailed list of all the things that he needs. But Nehemiah doesn't say anything about that stuff, does he? Right? He says 100% of the credit goes to God. He says, and because God's gracious hand was on me, the king answered my request. He doesn't say, because God's hand was on me and I had a great plan with a super thought-through strategy. And it went well. No, 100% of the credit goes to God. It was his gracious hand at work. Nehemiah understands that it's not his strategy and it's not his planning that mattered most. Although God used those things, it was God's hand at work that did. It was his sovereign hand at work that's the thing that mattered the most. As Proverbs 21 says, Nehemiah realized that in, in the hands of God, a king's heart is like a stream that he decides wherever he wants it to go. See, the truth is, is that although King Artaxerxes was the most powerful man in the world, he was still under the authority of another king, a greater king, the great and awesome God, the God of heaven, Yahweh. You see, it can be really easy for us to read stories, especially Old Testament stories, and think that they're primarily about us, that they're primarily about teaching us a lesson about leadership principles or about the importance of strategy and planning when we're trying to follow God and do his work. And I don't want you to get me wrong, right? Strategy and planning, those are important and wise things to do. But when we read the story with those things at the forefront, what happens is we miss the point of the story altogether. You see, Nehemiah is not the hero of the whole book, and he's not the hero in chapter 2 here. No strategy could have changed the heart of this king. No amount of planning is going to winsomely convince this dude to totally overturn his own previous decisions. That's not how kings roll. Only God could have done that. And what we see is that he does. You see, the situation that the Israelites were in must have felt like hopeless and overwhelming. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. They've been that way for 140 years. And any efforts to rebuild the city have been squashed. And, and there's no hope, it would seem. And yet the realities that we see is that God is absolutely not overwhelmed. He's not in the background wringing his hands, like trying to figure out, like, oh, plan A, that went to crap. All right, we got to figure out another option. Like, how are we going to get this thing moving back towards the plan I had always had? No. We see that he is sovereignly at work bringing about his plans to fulfill his promises of redemption and restoration and renewal. And there is nothing that's getting in his way. He puts Nehemiah just where he needs to be, just as he did with, previously with Esther. And just as he prepared the hearts of the King Cyrus to send Israelites back to Jerusalem, he prepares the heart of the great King Artaxerxes himself. There is nothing that is stopping God from accomplishing his plans and purposes. And what you see is that Nehemiah's life is a testimony to what it looks like when you get that. His life is a, is a declaration to us. It's like a, a testimony that shows us this is what it looks like. When you get that God is the great God of heaven who is faithful and sovereign to always keep his promises. 
It doesn't lead him to a life of anxiety and anxious strategizing and planning, nor does it lead him to a passive, kind of just dismal, dismissive kind of indifference. Instead, what we see is that it leads him to a life of bold dependence on God. As we close this morning, what I want to do is I just want to highlight three characteristics, three things I think Nehemiah shows us about what it looks like to to live with a bold dependence on God. Because the reality is that I think the idea of depending on God is kind of a fuzzy idea oftentimes. And I just want to show us a little bit what we see in, in, in Nehemiah's example that he sets for us about what it looks like to, to live with a bold dependence on God. And the first thing that I think we see in, in Nehemiah's life is that bold dependence on God is always characterized by a life of prayer. It's always characterized by a life of prayer. Prayer is something we see, we're going to see Nehemiah doing over and over and over and over in the book. He prays before he does stuff. He prays while he's doing stuff. He prays after he does stuff. He's praying all the time, right? In nine of the 13 chapters, we specifically see him talking with God and praying and and talking with God about what's going on. That arrow prayer he shot up in verse four, right? In the middle of this really stressful situation, that was not the first time he had talked to God about any of this. It's like the seven millionth time he had been talking with God about. What's even crazier is that when you, we'll read in a couple of weeks when we get to where he builds the wall, the dude spends three or four months praying. It takes less than two to actually rebuild the wall. He spent twi- more than twice as much time praying about the thing he was asking God to do than he does even doing it. You see, and the reason why Nehemiah is spending all this time in prayer is because what he understands is that a life lived for the glory of God and spent building his kingdom is not contingent on your passion. It's not contingent on your motivations. It's not contingent on the effort you exert. And it's not contingent on your skill. But it hinges on the gracious hand of God. Jesus says to his disciples later, he says, Without me, you can do nothing. Not some stuff that's okay, not as good as I could have made it, but still worthwhile. Not, not, not a little bit, you know, best effort stuff. He says, no, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value, nothing of real significance, nothing that matters for the kingdom can be done without the gracious hand of God. None of it. And Nehemiah his life of prayer, it shows us that that's what it, a life of prayer is. It's like that's the fruit of a bold dependence on God. Because what you realize is that you have nothing to bring to the table, and yet the one who you worship is the only one who has power to change everything. My question to you this morning is, do you pray like that? Do we, do we pray like that? Do we pray like we actually don't have power to change stuff, but God does? Or, or do we actually pray like it'd be nice, it'd be like a good benefit, like it'd be a bonus if God would like get on our team with the thing that we were doing, but it's not really that important and you know, we'll still go ahead with our plans no matter what. I think the reality is that God really convicted me about that this week. My default tendency is to plan and strategize and even act first and then pray once all of that has not worked or I hit a wall, right? Maybe you're like me. I don't know, right? It feels easier to kind of take things into your own hands, right? But the reality is that I have no power and authority to do anything. God does. 
God's been correcting that tendency in my heart over the last year or so. I'm grateful for that, but like, there's, there's a lot more work to do. There's a lot more transformation, dependence that needs to happen on him. You see, the reality is that if we're going to be able to join in and be a part of the work that God's already doing in and around us, then we have got to be a people who are praying all the time. Because what prayer is, it's like, it's like a declaration that we don't have what we need. And that's true. We don't. But it's also a reminder that God does, that he's the great God of heaven who has all authority and all power, and he's the one who rules and reigns. And let me just be clear here. Nehemiah, isn't, he isn't just praying dependently, right? He, he doesn't have his own agenda that he's praying for God to bless and support. I just want to be clear about that. Nehemiah is not praying about his own agenda. He's praying God's agenda back to him. Right? We saw in the chapter one how he is praying that God would do what God already promised he would do. Right? Nancy Guthrie, she puts it so well. She says it this way. She says, dependent prayer is not about telling God what we think he ought to do and pressuring him to do it, but about asking God to do what he has already promised to do. See, dependence on God is not about using prayer to get God on your team. It's about remembering and reminding yourself whose team you're really on. You got MJ on the team, right? Like, you're going to be fine, Right? You win. That's how it goes, right? Six times. Doesn't fail, right? But it's better with God, right? You see, and so a life of bold dependence is characterized first by a life of prayer. But we also see in Nehemiah's example that it's also characterized by thoughtful planning. Now, I, I know I've been very overt that the point of the story is not the importance of prayer and planning, or the importance of planning and strategizing. But the reality is, is that dependence on God and planning are not somehow like mutually exclusive ideas, right? I think sometimes we can get in our heads that like, oh, if we really just depended on God, then we wouldn't need to plan because then he'll, he'll just take care of it, right? And our planning is just kind of our doubting, and that's, that's problematic in a whole lot of ways, right? The, the real problem is often that we don't plan at all, right? Maybe you pray a lot, but you don't plan. So when the opportunities that you've been praying about arise, you're just like, oh, I didn't think that was actually gonna happen, right? Or you're just like hoping that God's gonna like pity a fool and like empower you somehow to like miraculously do the thing that you had not really prepared or thought about at all beforehand, right? And the reality is that sometimes God does that, right? Sometimes he does prepare us in unexpected situations and ways and empower us in all kinds of ways. And so I'm not trying to undermine that, but the reality is that oftentimes uh, we just don't plan at all. And that's a problem. It would have been a problem for Nehemiah if he got to the king and the king's like, what do you want? And he's like, oh, I haven't thought about it much. I've just prayed about it a lot. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know where we're going. I got to think about that again, right? That would not have gone well, right? would be like, all right, well, chance is gone. You're out, buddy, right? So sometimes we don't plan, but the other problem I think that we fall into a lot of times is that we mix up the order of prayer and planning and that's where we get into trouble, right? A lot of times what happens is we plan first and then we ask God to bless our plans, Right? That's not how that works. <laughs> Rather than praying first and asking God to shape our plans in the first place, what you see in Nehemiah's story, he doesn't mix up that order. He's praying first and he's praying often, but he's also planning. And so when the king asks him what he wants, he knows how to answer the question. He knows what he needs to take a next step and to be a part of the things that God is calling him to do. And Nehemiah has very clearly spent a lot of time planning but even still what we see is that prayer takes the priority. In the middle of the executing the plan, 
he still stops to pray. Because that's the big E on the I chart. That's the thing that matters most. But what we see is the last thing is that dependence on God doesn't just stop at prayer or planning. It leads to action, right? You've got to do something, right? It's not just prayer and planning. It's actually taking risks and action. That's what dependence on God really looks like, right? The reality is that dependence on God doesn't mean just sitting back and letting God decide, just trusting that he's going to do whatever he wants to do and be like, all right, God, I trust you. Like, go for it, right? The reality is that dependence on God looks like actually believing that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And he's inviting us into the things that he is doing. And it looks like trusting him that he's going to use us to make much of him and stepping out in, in faith and trusting that if we're acting in line with his priorities and his agenda, not our own, as we see laid out in scripture, that he's going to be faithful to use us as he sees fit. And I hope this is just an encouragement to you as well, but it's just, I just want to remind you, Nehemiah is freaking the crap out the whole time, right? Like he's standing before the king doing this really risky and bold thing, but he is afraid. He, he, is, not, he is not just like blazingly confident. He's afraid in the middle of it. And I hope that's encouraging to you because sometimes I think what happens is we feel like, oh, if we really just trusted God enough, we'd never be afraid about anything. Here's the reality. If you're never afraid to take risks for Jesus, you're probably not doing much. You're probably not doing much. The point is not that we are never afraid of following God into the challenging things he asks us to do for him. The point is that we don't let fear be the thing that drives our actions and our attitudes and behaviors. But instead, we allow a great vision of the great and awesome God the one who is sovereignly rules and reigns over all things and who is faithful to keep his promises. We allow that to be the thing that drives our attitudes and behaviors. Reality, sometimes you'll be afraid even as you trust in God in it. The more you do it, the more you trust him, the less afraid you're going to be because you keep seeing how faithful and good and sovereign he is. Now, let me just close with this. I just want to be clear. The, the, the point of this morning is not like, okay, so now you should know that God's sovereign and in control, and so you should just live dependently on him. So do better and try harder and just be dependent. That'll be great. That's how it'll work, right? That's not how it ever works. That's not how it works, and that's not what I want to get across to you this morning. Instead, what I want to remind you of is that the only way we can be a people like Nehemiah who live in bold dependence on God is when, like God does for Nehemiah, he's the one who empowers it in us. You see, the whole story of Nehemiah is not just Nehemiah sucking it up enough, just manning up and making it happen. It's a story about him trusting God and God empowering him to do incredible things. See, the reality for us is if we want to be a people who live in bold dependence on Nehemiah, the only way that happens is when we see that Jesus has done it for us. That he is the true and better Nehemiah, the one who left not just an earthly palace of a foreign king, but left the heavenly palace in heaven, a place of honor and glory. And he did it not just risking possible death, but with certainty of it. And what he accomplishes on our behalf, perfectly depending on God, trusting him and following him in, in every possible way, what he does for us and accomplishes for us is the thing that makes us able to stand before the great God of heaven, not with fear and trepidation as Nehemiah does before the King Artaxerxes, but with, but with confidence and hope. Because what Jesus does makes us not just foreign servants of a great king, but beloved children of the God of the that changes everything. 
when you get that, and when God causes by his spirit those truths to sink down deeply into your heart, what happens is that dependence on him is the joyful fruit of it. It's not just that you're always trying harder and working better to make something happen, but it's out of a joyful hope in him that you live a life full of dependence on him, a life characterized by prayer and by thoughtful planning and by bold risk-taking because you know that the great sovereign God of the universe is the one who's in charge and that you can trust him to bring about his purposes through you. That's what we're remembering and that's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion, reminding ourselves about God's faithfulness to keep his promises and to transform us, cause us to be not just foreign servants, but beloved children through Jesus. And so communion then is a, not just a, it's not some way that we try to change our, our status or our standing before God, but it's a way that we get to respond to the status and standing he's given us by faith in Jesus. And so during our time of worship, I want to encourage you. If you put your hope and your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, if he is the great God of heaven, the sovereign ruler and reigner of all things, then go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration, reminding yourself of who he has proven himself to be. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and if following him and surrendering to him and trusting him and depending on him is something you even want or think you can do, and I want to encourage you. I just want you to know you're so welcome here, but I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after your heart, a heart of deep and abiding trust and dependence on him. And so talk to him about that this morning. He wants to show you who he really is. Ask him to. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for our time this morning. I'm so grateful that we would get to gather to worship you and, and to study your word. And we're so grateful as well, Jesus, for the story of Nehemiah and for the reminder that it's not a importance about brilliant strategy or careful planning that makes the difference, but it's dependence on you. We're thankful, Jesus, that Nehemiah shows us uh, not that we need to work on our own skills primarily, but that we need to work on depending on you. Thanks, uh, God, as well, that you sent Jesus in our place so that we wouldn't be foreign servants, but we'd be beloved children who can approach you with confidence and hope, knowing that you are a good father who loves us. So cause us, Jesus, to be a church that's characterized by a life of dependent prayer and of careful, thoughtful planning unto you and, and making much of our time and resources for your kingdom and also bold risk-taking so that we might be a people who live for the praise of your glory and help others to do as well. Pray these things in your good name. Amen.